Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. sleeping and my mom recommended this podcast to me. I fall asleep so much quicker and easier now. One of my favorite things about Snoozecast is any age can listen to them because none of the episodes are inappropriate or scary, but everybody finds the classic stories enjoyable. I will definitely recommend your podcast to all my friends. Thank you for helping me fall asleep easier. And thank you to our Canadian listener who wrote this. It put a big smile on our faces. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Aerial Somersaults. Tonight, we'll read selections from The Bird Watcher of the Shetlands by Edmund Sellis, written in 1905. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen to our others from this birdwatching series at snoozecast.com series. The author started as a conventional naturalist of his time, but Celis developed a disdain of the common practice of killing animals for scientific study. He was a pioneer of bird watching as a method of scientific study. The author was a solitary man and was not well known in ornithological circles. He avoided both the company of ornithologists and reading their observations so as to base his conclusions entirely on his own observations. He has gifted future generations with his beautiful and intuitive writing on birds. The island of Shetland 
is the northernmost part of Scotland. It has a complex geology, a rugged coastline, and many low, rolling hills. The islands have produced a variety of prose writers and poets who have often written in the distinctive Shetland dialect of the Scots language. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. duck is here, but not its beauty, for at this tail end of the summer and breeding season, the males have all departed, and it is the sober-colored female, either alone or accompanied by her little brood of ducklings, that one meets now along the shores of the island. True, There must be males in their just proportion among the latter, but at this tender age, the age of fluff and innocence, the sex of the bird is in abeyance, a world that is not yet begun. A pretty thing it is to see such little family parties coasting quietly along the shore and following all its bends and indentations. There is one such now, mother and three, coming slowly up this way, like the spring, though not so slowly as the spring, or anything at all spring or summer-like, comes to these islands. They are feeding, apparently, upon the brown seaweed that clothes, as with a mantle, each rock and smooth stone that lies upon the shallow bottom along a gentle shelving beach, making a continuous fringe which is but just submerged at low tide. In this the heads of the young ones are continually buried, but the mother eats more sparingly and seems all in all happy to be thus with her family. Now, as the eider duck is certainly very much of an animal feeder, supposed indeed to be wholly so, one would naturally think that here the food sought for is not the seaweed itself, but any live things that may be clinging to it. This, accordingly, was my provisional hypothesis, but practical investigation hardly supported it, for, on examining some of the seaweed, first in one spot, and then another, along the track in which the birds had swum, 
I could find nothing whatever upon it. Noticeably bare, indeed, it was. The eyes of an eider duck are, no doubt, sharper than my own, or anybody's. Still, I do not believe that even the most sharp-sighted one could find anything on this seaweed, at least without searching for it. Whereas these ducklings are constantly dipping and, apparently, as constantly feeding all the way along. Finding always, they never have the appearance of looking for what they find. To me, they seem to be browsing in their little ducking way, just as sheep browse in a field. The seaweed here is not the long brown sort, but another and almost equally common kind, which is shorter and covered with little lobes, shaped something like an orange seed, but of a slightly larger size. Small grapes, perhaps, since they grow in bunches, is more what they resemble. They are full of a clear, gelatinous substance that might well be appreciated, and having, to the boot of all the other indications, actually seen something that looked very like one of them in the beak of a duckling, I imagine. And it is a pleasing imagination that the latter, at any rate, derive some part of their sustenance from these, their underwater vineyards. But I have seen seaweed in the mother's bill also, and this was not only the brown sort, but a soft green variety which grows sparingly with it. When feeding, without any doubt, upon living prey, Eider ducks are accustomed to dive, going right to the bottom, and often coming up with what they find there, a crab or other kind of shellfish, to dispose of it on the surface at their leisure. The chick can dive as easily as the grown bird, but one may watch these family excursions for a long time without once seeing either of them do so. Instead, they now merely duck to get the seaweed, which almost reaches the surface. The chicks, however, are often raised by the swell of the sea beyond the height at which they can nibble it comfortably. And it is then funny to see the hind portion of their little bodies sticking up in the air with their legs kicking as they hold on with might and main to prevent being floated off on the wave. 
Sometimes a brisk one bids fair to tilt them right over, but they always ride it in the most buoyant manner. The motion with which they do so, or rather, with which it is done for them, is sometimes very curious, for they look as though they were swung out at the end of a piece of elastic and then drawn smoothly back again, just as they are on the point of turning a somersault. But more often, it is a plain bob-bobbing. Thus, over wave and ripple, they bob lightly along, while their mother, floating deeper and heavier, bobs with more equipoise, a stater bob that has much of deportment about it. Each kind has its charm. Never was there a prettier family bobbing. All bob to each other. That, at least, is what it looks like. And their song, if they had one, would be certainly this. If it wasn't a wheel bobbit, will bobbit, will bobbit. If it wasn't a wheel bobbit, will bobbit again. But for my part, I have never seen them bobbit otherwise than well. They all of them bob to perfection. Scenes like this belong to the pebbled beach and gently sloping shore. There are others in the deeply indented, rocky bays that bound the greater part of the island. Here, in the frowning shadow of beetling, cavern-worn precipices, one may often see the little eider ducklings crawl out to feed upon the steeply sloping sides of rocks or mightier stacks, as those great detached spurs of the cliff that the water swirls round are called here, while their mother waits and watches on the sea close at hand. She does not bob now. These sullen heaving waves sway with her in a larger and more rhythmic motion, calm but portentous, like the breathings of a sleeping lion that may at any moment awake. Or she will follow her ducklings, sliding up on the heave of the wave and remaining most smoothly deposited as though the sea rough and rude as it cannot help being, yet really loved her in its way and were solicitous of her safety. There she will feed beside them till she tires, and with a deep note that brings them running after her down the smooth, wet slope of the rock, goes off on the wave that is waiting. 
goes off on the wave that is waiting, like a ship with so many little waves following in her wake. The most she ever sails with now is three, and very often she has only one to attend her. Ducks and Divers The red-throated diver moves softly upon the gentle play of the ripples, seeming, rather, to float with the tide than to swim, for there is no defined swimming action. When it turns and goes the other way, it meets the opposing motion, the little dance of the sea, as if it were a ripple itself, assuming the shape of a bird. This shape is a graceful one, something between that of a grebe and a guillemot. One might say that a guillemot had been sent to a finishing school and had very much profited by it, but this is not to imply that the grebe is slighted in the comparison. No bird that swims need think itself so. Much there is grebe-like in manner and action and in shape, except for the crest. By the want of this, the bird, I think, rather gains than loses to the human eye. For handsome as the grebe's crest is, the delicate curve of head and neck is interrupted by it, and the effect is rather bizarre than beautiful. It loses something in purity, that beauty of the undraped statue, to which Cicero compares the style of Caesar. The neck of the red-throated diver offers a wonderful example of delicate yet effective adornment. Down the back of it, and encroaching a little upon each side, run thin stripes of alternate black and white, so cleanly and finely divided that they look as though they had been traced by a paintbrush in the hand of a Japanese artist. There is the rich, ruddy chestnut on the throat, but the rest of it, with the head and chin, is of a very delicious, plum-bloomy gray, which looks in the sunlight as though it would be purple if it dared, but were too modest. A lovely and aesthetic combination. Soft, yet bright, and the whole with such a smoothness as no words can describe. There is another effect wrought by the sun, if it should happen to be shining, and if the bird should be swimming 
so as to give a profile view. It then looks as though there were a broad, white stripe, white, but having almost a prismatic brilliancy along the contour line of the nape. This appearance is most deceptive, and it is only when the bird turns its neck so as to show the several thin, delicate stripings that one sees it to be an illusion. It is produced, I think, by the light being reflected from the white stripes alone, so that the black ones between them are overlooked. Whatever may be the cause, the fact is most striking and lovely, and if the stripes themselves are due to sexual selection, which I do not doubt they are, this far more beautiful appearance, being the effect and crown of them, must assuredly also be. Here is a neck, then, and I have seen three, and once even seven together. In their way of diving, again, these birds resemble the grebes. Sometimes they go down with a very quiet little leap, but often they sink and disappear so gently and gradually that one is hardly conscious of what they are all about till one sees them no more. As much as any creature, I think, they softly and silently vanish away. Another habit, which they have is shared by the cormorant and other seabirds, and has often puzzled me. It is that of continually dipping their bills in the water and raising up from it again, as though they were drinking. Though that they should drink the salt sea like this, for hours at a time, seems a strange thing. What is the meaning of this action, which I have just seen a shag perform 46 times in succession, at intervals of a few seconds, as if for a wager? And this was after having watched it doing the same thing for some time before. After the 46th sip, as it were, this bird made a short pause and then recommenced. Is this drinking? And, if not, what is it? The head and part of the bill are, each time, sunk in the water, so that, as the bird moves on, they plow it like the ram of a warship. Then, in a second or two, the head is raised, 
not so high indeed as in an unmistakable thirsty draught, which I do not remember at any time to have seen shags indulge in, but with much the action of drinking. The bill, it is true, is very little opened, hardly sufficiently so to be noticeable. But very little would allow for water entering it. But why should the bird drink like this? It cannot be that the salt water makes it more and more thirsty. For this, as with shipwrecked sailors, would produce evil consequences. But of course, this is out of the question. Sometimes it has struck me that some small disseminated matter in the water might serve as food. And in regard to this, I have seen some large white Muscovy ducks engaged for a long time, apparently, in carefully sifting the quite clear water of a little rill. Here, too, there was some action as of drinking. On the whole, however, they seemed obviously to be feeding. But whatever they got must have been extremely minute. The waters of the sea are, no doubt, full of tiny floating substances, which a bird might yet be able to appreciate, and which would perceptibly add to its nourishment. If this were so, then drinking, as a special function, might become almost merged in the constant swallowing of water while taking food. And this may be the case with various seabirds. Guillemots and razorbills also act in this way, but not, I think, gulls. Seagulls drink the fresh water of lakes or locks and streams, whether they, of set purpose, also drink the sea, I am not quite sure. If they do, then no doubt I have seen them, but I have not set it down and have no clear recollection of it. These Muscovy ducks that I spoke of have another curious habit of drinking dew in the early morning. This, at least, is what it looks like. They walk about for hours over the well-kept lawns and with their heads stretched straight out just above the herbage, continually just open and shut the mandibles 
very quickly and very slightly, nibbling the dew, as it were. They certainly do drink it. Ones can see it disappear in their mouths. But whether that is all they do, or their chief object, it is not so easy to be sure of. Why should they walk about imbibing dew for such a length of time? And why should dew be so much preferred by them to ordinary water, of which there is abundance? These ducks, indeed, were at least the larger kind of them, which are of great size, are never to be seen swimming, but they often walk about by the edge of the lake. They have a most portentous appearance and walk with an extraordinary swing of the body, first to one side, and then another. They are fond of bread, but their ordinary eating and drinking is something of a mystery to me. I have seen them, apparently, browsing some long, coarse grass, more like rushes, but though occasionally they did crop a piece, the incessant nibbling was out of all proportion to what they got. It seemed, for the most part, to be simply in the air. They seem, indeed, to have a habit of incessantly moving the mandibles in this way, without any particular object, or, at any rate, without any clearly discernible result following upon their doing so. But as I remember these fine white Muscovy ducks with their vermilion faces and wild white eye with something of a look of insanity in it, I remember, too, that they are now gone or, at any rate, that most of them are, and those the best, the hugest, and most dragon-like. Sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish, and sometimes a duck. These wonderful, waddling, swinging red and white Muscovy ducks were, and to have them running after one, with uncouth hissings and with their heads held down, yet scooping up and wagged from side to side at one, and with that insane eye, made one think all sorts of odd things. Well, they are gone, nor are they the only ones that are. When I first, by necessity, came to live, near the ducks in the Pitville Gardens, were a great consolation to me. There was quite a fleet of them, a happy little flotilla of all kinds and colors, 
and at the smallest hint of bread on one side of the lake, they would all come flying over from the other, and then it was the sport to feed them. How diverting it was. Being in such numbers, one took notice of all the little differences in their dispositions, the different degrees of boldness and retiringness, of pugnacity, greediness, pertness, impudence, swagger, imperialism, and so on, all of which one could bring out in some amusing way or another by the varied and nicely schemed throwing of the bread to contrive that a timid bird should always get it while a boldly greedy one pursued in vain that two should contend for a large piece to the end that a third might swim securely away with it to tempt some to walk on thin ice till it broke and others to make little canals through it, each from a different place, each struggling to be first, to have one bird feeding from the hand, while a crowd stood round, looking enviously on, or the two so nicely balanced that they produced a deadlock, so that the bird stood on a very knife edge, trembling between a forward and a backward movement, and then, too, gradually, to come to connect the look and bearing of each bird with its disposition, to know them both outwardly and psychologically, to see them grow into their names that grew with them and have the bold orange bill, the modest gray, the swaggering white bird, the duchess, the fine lady, the my lord Tomnoddy, the kaiser, the swashbuckler, and so on, all about one so many characters, so many amusing little burlesques of humanity, human nature stripped, without its guards, disguises, softenings, and hypocrisies. All this was the solace and beguilement of many a tedious afternoon. From the edge of a precipice. I have been watching the black guillemots. Like the common ones, they often carry a fish they have caught for a very long time in the bill before swallowing it or even before giving it to their young. They will swim with it for half an hour or so constantly dipping it beneath the water and apparently nibbling on it with the bill. 
while they hold it thus submerged. Then, finding themselves near a rock which is climbable, they ascend it and, like couched there for a while, resting always with the fish in their bill, anon, with refreshed energies, they re-enter the sea with it, and, if very patient and prepared to watch indefinitely, one may at last see that fish swallowed, but I hardly think I should be exaggerating were I to say that hours may pass in this way. They usually hold the fish by the middle or just below the head, and if they want to shift their hold from one place to the other, they sink down their bills into the water as though better able to do so through its medium. To mandibulate a fish in the air quite freely, as does the cormorant, is, perhaps, beyond their power. Any moment, however, may show me that it is not. So, too, when I have seen them swallow the fish, they have done so in the same way. Instead of raising the head and gulping it down, they gulped it down, or rather up, with the water to help them, though I can hardly think that they are compelled to act in this way. These little birds, old ocean's pets, his darlings, seem to me to play at fighting while swimming together in little changing troops, for the numbers are always increasing or diminishing. They constantly approach one another in a threatening manner, the body raised in the water, the head held straight up, and the mandibles opening and shutting like a slender pair of scissors, a thoroughly warlike appearance, yet it hardly ever ends in anything, nor does the threatened bird seem really alarmed. Generally, the threatener, as he comes alongside, subsides into quiet humdrum, or two birds, after circling round one another in this way, each almost on its own pivot, like a pair of whirligig corks, both quiet down. Each, while thus acting, will, at intervals, drop the head and sink the beak a little in the water, one of their most usual actions. Sometimes, indeed, the menacing bird 
may fly at the one he menaces, who ducks at the right moment. But what makes me think it more play than wrath is that, often, instead of flying right at him, he flies to beside him only, and both then swim together, looking the best of friends. Yet too much stress is not to be laid on this either. Often, when one bird is attacked, all the others will dive and scurry about under the water in the most excited manner, seeming to pursue one another as though it were a game or romp. Sometimes, indeed, there will be a little bit of a scuffle. But if there be fighting, still more, as it appears to me, is there the play or pretense of fighting, which is tending to pass into a social sport or dance. The antics of birds are often so very curious, and the whole subject of their origin and meaning is so full of interest that nothing which might be any possibility throw light upon this ought to be neglected or can be too closely observed. I believe that the feelings of animals pass easily from one channel into another and that Therefore, nervous excitement brought forth by one kind of emotion is apt, in its turn, to produce another kind, so that if any special transition of this sort were at all frequent, it might, through memory and association of ideas, become habitual. If, however, a melee or scrimmage, to meet the case of these guillemots, became, almost as soon as started, a mere hurrying and scurrying about, it would be difficult to detect the one as the cause of the other. And this is just the difficulty one might expect for in such a sequence the tendency would, no doubt, be for the first or causal part of the activity to become more and more abbreviated. What should delay the passage? Until, at length, a mere start on the part of any one bird might set the others off dancing. Finally, what had become a mere pretense or starting point might vanish entirely. 
or only survive as an indistinguishable part of the other, in which case there would be the dance or sport alone, which would then seem a very unaccountable thing. In this way, I can imagine the evening dances or antics of the great plover, which used to impress me so when I lived in Suffolk, to have originated. One might watch these performances a great many times without seeing anything to suggest that a feeling of pugnacity entered into them. Nevertheless, there is, sometimes, a slight appearance of this. For I have several times seen a bird pursue and wave its wings over one another. My theory is that an initial energy or emotion sometimes flows out into subsidiary channels, and that gradually this secondary factor may encroach upon and take the place of the primary one. At any rate, to come back from the general to the particular, it is apparent to me that these little ebullitions, or whatever they may be called, of the black guillemots are of a blended nature, and I should think it misleading to describe them simply as fights. Whatever they are, they are very pretty to see. The actions of all the little dumpling birds are so pert, brisk, and vivacious. So elegant, too. Yet a bird will go through it all, play every part in the little affair, carrying, all the while, a fish in its bill. <laughs>